Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat sermon by Rabbi Matt Shapiro. Thanksgiving was just last week. Um, it feels like it was already a lot longer ago, but Thanksgiving was just last week. And so I had been thinking about um, last Thanksgiving, we used to travel on Thanksgiving, then we would go to a friend of ours house who, who moved away. Last year, for the first time, we actually had Thanksgiving, just the five of us, me, Sarah, and, and the boys. Um, it was a bit of a, a culinary disaster. I took the turkey out of the oven too early, and it, it wasn't ready, and then that meant we had to put the turkey back in the oven, but it had to warm up before it could start cooking again. Uh, it was not great. I got very hungry and, and a little cranky, and things, things kind of uh, fell apart a little bit. Uh, we had much better luck this year because Sarah stayed in charge of the turkey the whole time. I did cook a little bit. I made pumpkin pie and mashed potatoes and roasted vegetables, three whole things. Sarah made the rest. Uh, it was it was delicious. It was a really, really delicious Thanksgiving dinner. Um, very full table of food for the five of us. Um, and I, I also got to say that as we were sitting around this table eating our, our delicious Thanksgiving feast. Fortunately, the boys, the boys enjoyed the food. Uh, having sweet potatoes with marshmallows uh, definitely helps, helps the sweet potato go down. Um, but, but there was also some ambivalence, maybe even a little bit reg- of regret looking at our very full table because I had been uh, reading on and off and starting to hear about how many people, um, particularly this Thanksgiving, were, were going hungry. Um, and there really was some dissonance for me. And I don't know if it's because we didn't have the event that we usually have here where we um, feed folks who come from our community and then we bring food out into the community or because numbers are going up with the pandemic still um, uh, ravaging our, our community. Um, but there was some dissonance there and some, some discomfort for me looking at our heaping beautiful table of food and also being mindful of the fact that there are so many um, in our community, in our city, in our country who, who are hungry, who are really in need. And I think I was particularly attuned to that because um, a couple of weeks ago, um, uh, a, a phrase that has never uh, existed before happened for the first time. There was the Mazon Virtual Jewish Clergy Justice Mission. It's, kind of a mouthful. Mazon, an organization that's a, a Jewish response to hunger that works on um, both action items and policy uh, very broadly, was able to convene people from all over the country quite easily because of technology like this um, for some advocacy and also for some learning around hunger, um, how that works within the system or doesn't work within the system of, of government uh, and learning a little bit. And there were some advocacy opportunities as well. Um, and most noteworthy for me was uh, a session with Congressman Jim McGovern, who's actually the chair of the House, uh, the House Hunger Caucus, the Hunger Caucus of the House of Representatives. And he highlighted that even before the pandemic, even before folks started struggling uh, in this current moment, there were 40 million people, 40 million people in the United States who are food insecure. And I was doing a little more reading uh, afterwards, the estimate was that within Los Angeles County, even before the pandemic, that 
uh, estimates are one in five households, 20% of households uh, in, in the county um, are food insecure, were food insecure, and that recently that went up to being one in four homes. 25% of homes in Los Angeles County uh, experienced at least one instance of food insecurity, a lack of access to affordable and nutritious food from April to July of this year. It's millions and millions of people. And I'll add that um, to, to break up the way at least I was, I think, thinking about it a bit, and some of us might be thinking about it, this runs across income levels. This isn't just based on um, metrics of sort of standard poverty in terms of the level of income folks might have. Um, this is from a study, the previous number and this number is from uh, a study done by uh, an organization out of USC called the Public Exchange. Um, the study showed that nearly one in five households that experienced food insecurity during the pandemic weren't low income. By standard definition, low income is under $60,000 per year. Uh, that almost 14% uh, rather of those uh, households experiencing food insecurity had incomes between sixty dollars and $100,000 per year. And nearly 6% had annual incomes of more than 100000 That there's a lot of different factors that come into play in thinking about who might not have access to affordable and nutritious food that, as we know, is just a basic need that we have as people in order to, to lead our lives. So those numbers to me are pretty jarring and call out for some kind of thinking response way of reflecting on this to drive some kind of uh, meaningful response on my end. And that, that feels challenging. That feels difficult. And of course, I'm grateful. And I appreciate the fact that in this moment, me and my family, we have, we have food on our table, right? And I, I don't want to take that for granted. I'm grateful that growing up, I didn't experience hunger. That, that wasn't my experience. I'm grateful to my parents for providing for me. And also not just to be walking around with blinders on that just because that hasn't been, hasn't been, who knows what the future holds, but hasn't been my experience, that there are still millions and millions of people in need and, and wrestling with what to do about that. So, you know, one of the things that I do when I'm wrestling is I turn to our tradition, right? That for me as, as a Jew, our tradition holds wisdom in terms of how to think about how to respond to what's, what's feeling challenging for me. Um, I'd imagine many of you know who are watching this that, of course, our tradition does hold guidelines, rules, meets vote for caring for the needy, caring for the widow, the stranger, the orphan, that um, within different law codes, there are guidelines set up in terms of how people uh, were supposed to give and how people who've been in a community for X amount of time could access different resources from that community. Um, and they are they're meaningful guidelines and they're important guidelines to hold that in Dvarim, we're told there shall be no needy and guidelines laid out for how to support people. And that, that's important, right? It's important that we have those guidelines and they can provide us with some anchor in thinking about this big topic. But I want to explore it a little bit with you um, through the lens of narrative, because it's just different to approach an issue through the lens of law as opposed to through the lens of, of narrative, right? We have in our tradition halakha and agadah. There are the more legalistic components. There are more narrative components. Um, and both can be um, useful in thinking about how to navigate uh, different issues or questions that come up for us. So I'm going to be exploring this with you know, the narrative that's been going on in the past couple of weeks, the narrative of Yaakov and Esav, of Jacob and Esau, and what's been happening between the two of them. I'll give this setup that two weeks ago in Parshat told out. Uh, to say it as nicely as possible, we can say that Yaakov was not particularly empathetic or sensitive 
to his brother's plight when his brother was hungry, hungry, that his brother had been out in the field hunting and, and Yaakov had, had some nice, uh, lentil stew cooking away. Yaakov, uh, Asaph came in, he was hungry, he was exhausted. And then I, I would hold up to that, that when you're feeling really hungry, it doesn't necessarily feel like you have a choice. Right. What are you going to do? You're just really, really hungry. And the eighth time uh, Humash pointed out in the commentary, it says a person who is very hungry, it says this very strongly, actually. It says a person who is very hungry lacks the capacity to be concerned with covenants and religious obligations. I think that's very strong. I actually think people who are hungry remarkably still might be able to function, right? There are, unfortunately, hundreds of thousands of people in our county who go to work hungry, live their lives hungry. But there's no doubt, of course, that if you're feeling hungry, you're more vulnerable, you're more likely to be compromised in the kind of decisions that you might need to make just to meet your basic human needs. Those you can, can picture Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? That, that Abraham Maslow, 20th century psychologist, articulated that there are certain degrees of need that we each have as people. And before you can move to another layer of need that you might I want to get to to some level of fulfillment in your life, the, the layer underneath that needs to be fully met. And at that baseline level, um, I wish I'd printed out a, a bigger picture of the triangle. I have a little diagram here, but one of the basic physiological needs is food. You can't move towards fulfillment. You can't worry about self-fulfillment. You can't worry about getting your emotional needs met until you at least know that you have enough food. And in my mind, that's the place that Asav is in at this, uh, in this scene in the narrative and I would say Jacob takes advantage of that, right? He, Esav has something that, that Jacob wants. He has the blessing. And Jacob says, okay, we'll swap, right? If you give me the blessing, I'll give you the food. Esav, of course, agrees. And it's interesting then as well as we go through the next couple of stages of the narrative that Yaakov has gotten the blessing from Esav. And in terms of what transpires from there, that, of course, Jacob tricks uh, Isaac, his father, pretending to be a seven. How does he trick him? Well, through food, right? Through that he goes out and hunts. And in terms of the blessing that he receives, talks about the benefits, the actual benefits, the food that he will reap from the land uh, based on the blessing that has been given. It's interesting to me to track how primary a role food plays in this narrative. And so through Jacob's continued sort of trickery and, and manipulation around food, a, it seems like he gets what he wants, but B, then there's nearly a catastrophic consequence, right? Once Esau finds out, he's, he's threatening to kill his brother. And so, and so Jacob needs, he needs to flee, right? He needs to run away because of all of these sort of machinations around food and hunger and need and blessing and betrayal and resources and so on. And so then we're left wondering what, what's going to happen, right? Upon returning, if he returns, we know he returns, but walking through that narrative, what's going to happen when he returns? And that's where we pick up this week in our Parsha. And I would say that we can see that years later, he's still feeling bad. He's still feeling some level of guilt. He's not quite sure what to do about this. We know the scene well as we're moving towards this uh, question, will there be reconciliation where there'll be battle? What's going to happen when Jacob and Esau meet each other again? And there's, of course, the scene where... He, <laughs> Jacob wrestles with the man, the angel, the divine being, ambivalent in the narrative, unclear what it might be, ambiguous rather in the narrative what it might be. And um, there's a midrash. One of the main rabbinic interpretations talks about how the being, 
that Yaakov wrestles with is, is Esav's guardian angel. That, that the angel that he wrestles with, it's actually Esav's guardian angel. And Yaakov wrestles with it over the course of the night that he's wrestling with this figure, depending on how you read things. Um, sort of the, the, the rabbis do not like Esau. We'll just sort of leave it at that. He's a, he's a symbolic of Rome. He's symbolic of a lot of destruction that happens to the Jewish people over the years. In the shot of the narrative, he doesn't yet hold that, but the rabbis don't really like Esau so much. And so Jacob's wrestling with Esau is seen as this, this big struggle between good and evil in a lot of the texts. But there's another Midrash that says, as Jacob's wrestling with this angel, that Jacob says to the angel, I won't let you go until you forgive me for the blessing with which father blessed me. This isn't just about a battle between good and evil. This is about a man who's been carrying around guilt, shame for what he did to his brother, and he, he hasn't let it go. And he needs to find a way to let it go in order to be able to move to what's next and to try to reach this reconciliation with his brother, that these emotions are still lingering and this wrestling that happens before he crosses the river to go try to reconcile with his brother. He needs to find a way to start forgiving himself and to start moving forward into what might be next uh, in terms of that relationship. They meet, they embrace and they're moving towards some kind of reconciliation. And they're talking it through. And um, Nechama Leibovitz points out that there's, there's a, a verse that's often translated one way that actually more evocatively should be seen in the Hebrew. If you look at chapter 33, verse 11, they're, they're, they're seeing each other saying, oh, here's your family. Here are all the resources that you have. Um, this is, uh, you know, Jacob prostrates himself. Um, and, and says, you know, uh, I'm here to gain your favor. Esau says, I'm okay. I have, I have enough. Yeshli Rav, I have plenty. And Jacob says, please take this mincha, take this gift from me. Take minchati. That's in verse 10. And then in verse 11, he says, Kachna et birchati asher That please accept, the translation of JPS says, please accept my present. But looking at the Hebrew, it says, et birchati, et this, this blessing, right? This blessing. And Nahama Leibovitz comments beautifully. She's a beautiful comment on this. If you should wonder why Jacob uses the word bracha instead of mincha is in the previous verse, it might be suggested that he deliberately called that abundance blessing to inform Esau that the blessing with which he had been blessed, he wouldn't steal from him. And here it was. It was this type of blessing he had been interested in that he's now giving it back in turn. I've been holding this, and now I'm now trying to return it to you. And Leibovitz, in response to the fact that he had been praying before this, she says his prayer had prompted him, Jacob. Jacob's prayer prompted him to see things in their true light, that the true light, that what really needs to happen here is for Jacob to willingly give what he had previously um, taken from his brother. And so there's this growth within Jacob. There's this willingness to, that having moved from really not having empathy, not maybe having awareness or even having awareness and taking advantage of that awareness, moving from that place of being at the beginning of the narrative to a place now where he's able and willing to give that blessing back in return. 
And I think that that's an interesting model to work with when we think about um, potentially our own response to hunger. Extrapolating out, I just got to say in thinking about this, it's really interesting to notice how much hunger Uh, The question of hunger appears in the Torah. When you think about all the wanderings that the Israelites do through the desert and how much they're fetching about not having enough food to eat. Um, If you think about going back into the Jacob story, that he's only ultimately able to reconcile with Joseph because of a famine that brings him down to Egypt. Or even just in that wrestling scene a moment ago that we don't eat the sciatic nerve in the thigh, that wrestling itself impacts how we eat. It's it's. There, there's, there's potentially more drashot to be written on this, but I'll just name it's interesting for me to start thinking about this lens. And there's, of course, that famous rabbinic uh, saying, Ein kemach, ein Torah, right? If you don't have food, if you don't have sustenance, if you don't have a way of providing for yourself, you, you don't have the resources to be able to learn, right? You can't, you can't focus on spiritual matters if you don't have your bare necessities, if you don't have the bare bone basics that you need to be able to live your life. You can ask, did Esau do anything wrong? Did Esau do anything wrong? Did he make some mistake that brought this manipulation upon him? Was it, was it wrong for him to be hungry? And in going back to that scene, Rashi points out that when Esau asks Yaakov for, uh, for the food, he uses the phrase halitaini na. And Rashi, without getting into all of it, says that this is basically him asking for the food to be poured into his mouth like, like an animal. And the Kotzka Rebbe picks up on that and says, ah, so therefore that was his mistake, right? That, that Esau's mistake was seeing himself as if he was an animal, not a person who just needed to consume, right? Rather than to eat, to bless, to, to be able to really be satiated in a more meaningful way than just gobbling food, the food down. But then he pushes it in a fascinating direction, and he says, to damage the, to damage the tselem of a person, to damage the image of a person, is more grave than to damage the image of God. To damage the image of a person is more grave than to damage the image of God. And what he's riffing on is back at the beginning of Breshit, the beginning of, of Genesis in the creation story, that there's a phrase when it talks about how people were created— that when God created man, Elohim et ha'adam betzelmo, betzelm Elohim bara oto. So he's midrashically playing with that word betzelmo, right? Betzelmo meaning in his image, saying in man's image is the move, betzelm Elohim. So in that verse, he's saying, Tzalmo takes precedence. The image of a person, the holiness of a person takes precedence and holds more weight than the very image of God. So when we think about hunger, when we think about where Esau might have missed the mark, it's for not honoring his own essence as a person, seeing himself as animalistic rather than as a human, and therefore that's where he might have fallen short. But then you can ask back to that understanding— Well, what was happening in his experience? What was happening in his life that he was willing and able to see himself in that light rather than as as a person who needs to be eating differently? And so then the question for us might be, how do we create relationships? How do we create a community, a city, a country where people don't see themselves in that way and might not feel drawn to that way of being?
possibly one of the most depressing pieces of the learning that we did uh, with with, uh, Representative McGovern was that he said to us that not even there, there are congresswomen, there are congressmen who aren't even necessarily aware of the impact that hunger is having on their communities, not out of any maliciousness, not because they don't care, but there just might not be awareness around it. They just might not know. They legitimately might not know what's what's happening in terms of how this runs across uh, systems in our country. And he said that there's a balance of immediate need and systemic change that needs to happen. And I would sort of refract that and say, so then there's, there's a piece of civic shift that might need to happen. And then there's a self-reflective piece in terms of how we can each act around this. I'll name first and foremost, I'm, I'm grateful to Rabbi Schatz, who took action on this already last year when she opened up a food pantry internally here at Temple Beth Am. And she did a lot of work to get that underway. And it was beneficial to people that there were folks who took in need. There were folks who, who might have forgotten lunch. You didn't have lunch that day. And there were po- people in need in our community who were able to take. And then when the food um, had been in the fridge for a little while, that we were able to give it to other people in need out in our community. Um, unfortunately, now, of course, things are, are different. We can't just have people going into and out of the building. So there is a question around what might we do now? And that's, that's an ongoing question. We invite and encourage responses to that. There are organizations we can give to, right? In addition to Mazon, which is a wonderful organization, there is SOVA at Jewish Family Services, which does wonderful work. There's the Los Angeles Regional Food Bank, which is a vital resource to people at this time. There's lots of places, if we're able to give, where we can give. And we can reflect on our own habits as people. The, the numbers around food waste are staggering to read that we collectively as a country waste 80 billion pounds of food a year. That's approximately 219 pounds of waste per person. That's somewhere between 30 and 40% of our country's food supply. The issue isn't that we don't have enough food. The issue is that the system isn't set up and that the work isn't being done to make sure that people get it. And in some ways that's even sadder. Congressman McGovern stressed the importance of programs like SNAP, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, and he broke down the numbers. He said, when you break down the numbers, it's an expensive program. It costs a lot of money. It's a lot of money to support people who are hungry, who are in need. But when you break it down and you divide it up, that program gives per meal per person $1.40. $1.40 per meal. There are days I've gone to Starbucks and spent three times that without even really thinking about it. And I'd imagine that's true for some of you as well. So there's a question there about how to navigate this. And there's a question when Congressman McGovern uh, said this, he, he asked questions about cost, right? We can think about cost as finances, but we can also think about cost short-term and cost long-term in terms of how hunger impacts health systems, how hunger impacts relationships and how people respond to each other. And I would also ask the question, what's the cost in terms of our values, in terms of how we want to be in the world and how we can care about people who might be in need? And I'll say as loudly as I can, there is no shame in being in need. Lots of people are in need. And if you need help, I'm here, we're here, we're blessed that our community has some resources. 
If you don't want to reach out within our community, you can just pick up your phone and call 211 to have access to resources locally. There's no shame in being in need. And if you are in need, please reach out and ask for help because we want to help and help is available. Because many of us are like Asaf, hungry, famished, exhausted. And many of us are like Jacob. We have enough. We're able to sustain ourselves. And even if we're not manipulative in terms of how we utilize food and resources, we might not have been as empathetic or aware as we could have been with how we might give of our resources. So refracting it back through the narrative, I'll say sort of a a three-step process, right? That first we can look and we can see that there might have been ways in which we didn't give as we could have or what we could have, as Jacob didn't at the beginning of the story. And we can see the damage that it might have caused, right? That it really hurt someone. And then after we've moved through that and we've let go of that process, as Jacob did with the angel, that we can find ways to give that blessing forward to the people around us, if we're able to. That we can say, here is the blessing that I took and here is the blessing that I'm giving back. And it's a challenge and it's not easy but we can look within our own tendencies, with our own impulses, and hopefully see that whatever that short-term challenge or cost might be, that it's outweighed exponentially by what our tradition teaches through both laws and through narrative, something that is simple and important and easily overlooked, that people who are hungry deserve food. And we each collectively and individually can and must work to make sure that they get it. And it's interesting maybe to think of a world in which Jacob gave freely from the outset and to think about how much conflict and pain might have been avoided. But there's hope, and this narrative does end in reconciliation, however tenuous it might be. And to call back to Nahama Leibovitz's words in terms of what Jacob's prayer did for him. So just as Jacob did today and always, may our own prayers prompt us to see things in their true light. And when we open our eyes, May we then respond so that we can embrace, as Jacob and Esau did, shed that guilt, and then walk forward together. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to TBA. LA.org.